I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo back with Sam Monson. That's right. Renner's gone. One and done. Sam's back. Welcome back, buddy. Thanks, Steve. How's it going? How's it going? Well, had a good show with Mike on uh, Thursday. Yeah? Just, I haven't listened yet. Yeah, You're probably not interested. It's the 2021 draft preview, so, you mm-hmm. know, it's a little little early Getting in you. there early. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just wanted to... Uh, you know, get his expertise, sell the preseason draft guide just a little bit. We have all sorts of preseason stuff, preseason draft guide, preseason college football magazine coming out. So all sorts of fun stuff with PFF Edge and Elite in the coming weeks. So we figured we'd give Mike a shot to uh, to talk some draft. But we're back here talking NFL, and guess what? It's late June, and we have some news to talk about. As late Sunday night, Cam Newton officially signed a one-year contract with the New England Patriots. Fascinating offseason for the Patriots, right? I kept looking at it as like, hey, we get to get into the mind of Bill Belichick here. What does he think of the quarterback position? He has not had to make a serious decision at quarterback. Maybe one, the Jimmy Garoppolo draft pick. One serious decision in 20 years. Was he going to draft somebody, go free agency, whatever? And it looked like Jarrett Stidham was going to be the guy. And here they are circling back and grabbing Cam Newton on a one-year deal, a cheap deal. What are your thoughts? A lot of people need to delete some takes over the previous couple of months about, you know, what what the Patriots are doing, what they believe in, you know, what Stidham is, all this kind of thing. I, we might need to delete some as well. I, I'm not sure. I, I actually don't know what to make of this, to be honest. Uh, one thing that struck me is, like, how Patriots a move is this, though, that not that they signed Cam Newton, that they did it, Late in the evening on a Sunday, June the 28th, while everyone else is like, you know, downtime, on vacation, doing nothing, and the Patriots finally go, ah, let's just sign Cam Newton. Yeah. Um, And and just like like any other position, they just said, like, we'll just wait and find the value play. So that's the thing, right, is that I don't know that it necessarily means you need to throw all priors out the window and... You know, there's a lot of people sort of writing these revisionists. Oh, wow, they've substituted one MVP for another MVP, and how does the league keep letting the Patriots do this and all this kind of stuff? They basically just waited to the point where they're like, look, like at this point the value is too good to turn down, right? Cam Newton is essentially willing to pay for free unless he plays a significant amount or, you know, plays well enough to hit these escalators that max out at like seven and a half million, like the absolute worst this deal can cost the Patriots is $7.5 million. And that's assuming Cam Newton plays well enough that they don't care that it costs them 7.5 million. So they've really just reached this point where they've said, we're not turning down this value at at this stage. I was, uh, I sent you something last week that was, um, it was essentially like advice to people in our industry about, you know, how to, how to advance your career, how to, how to get ahead. And it was essentially like have really strong takes, right? Like all that stuff that is uh, overtaken, you know, overtook ESPN 10, 15 years ago and has infiltrated our entire industry. Like just have some hot takes and doesn't matter if you're right or wrong and just kind of go. And then you have me who says over and over and over again on the show, like, ah, there's some nuance to this. Like, it's not exactly black and white. It's not this. It's not, you know, there's, there's gray areas to all this stuff. So like, that's me, that's me trying to describe Cam Newton. Because every take right now is either like, Cam is a former MVP, as you said. He's awesome, right? Or, it's not even being described as former MVP. It's just MVP. It's like MVP. President, you're a president, like president. until you yeah. die. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're an, MVP an MVP until, you, until you're gone. 
yeah, we can't call that. It was an outlier season that you know didn't mesh with anything else he did the rest of his career. And um, it was so five it's either years ago, right? It it was one of his eight years, um, and it didn't look anything like the other seven. So Cam, they either signed an MVP or they signed a bum who's been beat up, and he didn't jump on a fumble in the Super Bowl. And he, you know, wears wears funny stuff after games, and it's like, oh, he's not a gamer, he's not this. Like, there's no in between here. And honestly, right. Cam Newton, I think, is in between. I mean, he's he's got a yeah. cannon for an arm. He uh, can throw lasers down the field. He's not as accurate. He's not on the top half of the accuracy spectrum in the NFL. So again, the people that are like, oh, Cam Newton can throw down the field, they haven't had that with Brady, like. Nothing further can you know. Nothing further from the truth here, to be honest. Does he throw it faster? Yes. Is he a better downfield thrower than Brady? No. Um, and then you have the other part of it with the run game, and this is, I think, probably the thing I want to see the most. Right? Cam has been at his best when he's been a designed runner. Right? There's not a better third and fourth and one runner than Cam Newton. Right? I mean, that's the guy. Your short yardage runner. That's where he's maximized his value. He changes the numbers game. He, you know, he's uh, efficient running the ball as a designed runner. How much does Belichick and Josh McDaniels tap into that, especially on a one-year contract? Are they just like, hey, let's go all in. It's one year. We're not tied to him long term. The negative part about potentially having a run-first guy is like the long-term effects, right? So do the Patriots even care with one year of Cam Newton? Do they just go all in with him and just run him like crazy? I think what intrigues me, though, is the idea that he is somewhere in the middle. He is this middle ground, um, you know, nuanced option between those two extremes that everybody's talking about. And that is strange to me, right? Because this first year with no Brady, the replacement plan, the succession, the future, it felt to me that you had one of two options. You either try and find someone you think can be a viable quarterback and win you Super Bowls now, this offseason, or you do the whole tank for Trevor thing and you position yourself for next year and you try and get the quarterback then. And, you know, the idea of, well, why would they sign like a Teddy Bridgewater, right? Because that would put them in the middle of those two options. He's probably not a Super Bowl winning quarterback in his own right. And he's probably good enough that he keeps you away from the top of the draft next year. Cam Newton, again, feels like somewhere in between. Like he is good enough to get you to a Super Bowl, but only when he's healthy and playing at that MVP level, which is five years ago um now a we don't really know where he is health wise or even or play wise because it's been so long with him playing banged up we don't really know quite what he brings to the table but it's probably somewhere in between those two extremes so again i'm kind of like what is the plan here what is i I get that he's you know a cheap throwaway option and the value is too good you know like i i got a friend whose dad is like one of these sort of compulsive bargain shoppers you know you know, go out for like a bag of chips and come back with like a deck, uh, you know, cleaning device and a power washer and, and all these things. Be like, well, you know, at the discounts they were offering, I couldn't afford to leave it in the store. And that that's what this feels like, right? It's like yeah. the price the price this contract is, we couldn't afford to leave Cam sitting out there in the open market. Um, but again, I like I I don't know what the plan then is. Like, what are you? What are they doing? What what are they actually trying to achieve here? Not necessarily this year but for the next sort of five years yeah i mean you said we get we might have to delete some takes and all that stuff i mean i don't think i don't know if it's deleting takes i mean you can only have an opinion based off what you saw right and the patriots didn't draft anybody and didn't sign anybody so the implication is that they probably have some sort of you know appreciation for jared stidham's skills and they probably still do but i think it's just Your point. And it's also like, let's go back through the history of the Patriots. Like, not everything has to be six-dimensional chess, right? As soon as the Patriots didn't draft somebody or sign somebody, all of a sudden it was like, well, Belichick knows this is the only way to get Trevor Lawrence, therefore he needs to tank. When they signed Tim Tebow a few years ago, it's like, there you go. There's there's the Patriots' short yardage runner, and there's the guy. They're going to take Brady off the field, and they're going to have Tebow, and they're going to make him into an all-pro, and it was like... They kicked the tires on a former first-round pick. Like, that's all it was. It just happened to be Tim Tebow, who happened to have a ton of publicity and a unique game and and all that stuff. Like, is this any more than, like, kicking the tires on a former MVP, a former first overall pick, a guy with skills that you can work around, and 
let me just go back to my, my original take was I don't think Belichick has tanking in him. That's what I had way back in the day. I thought mm. he'll try to get an Andy Dalton, get a Nick Foles, get a Cam Newton, whoever it is, and try to win with him like we've essentially gotten to that point, I think. Yeah, and I, the only difference, I think, before with you know a Tebow and a Cam Newton is conceptually – um, obviously, there's vast differences in terms of quality. Of huge. I mean, there's a huge difference. Yeah, Cam has been way better. Right. Just to clarify before anybody questions you, Sam. Yes. Um, saw that one coming, headed it off at the pass. <laughs> but the, my point is, conceptually, the difference between say, kicking the tires on a Tim Tebow and kicking the tires on a Cam Newton is that previously you had Tom Brady, right? You had this baseline of we have probably the best quarterback in the NFL at every in any given season. And we'll just kick the tires on whatever else is out there and see if we can turn like if we turn Tim Tebow into some sort of quality option, we can flip him for draft picks or whatever. Like now you don't have the baseline. You don't have a Tom Brady. You have no idea what your starting quarterback situation is because the other option is Jarrett Stidham, who has shown it's like what, four NFL passes and one of them was a pick six. Um, you've got Brian Hoyer, who isn't an answer to anything. And then Cam Newton is the alternative option. So now you're kicking the tires on a guy who, if he's anywhere near healthy, is by far your best option to start. And again, but A, by far your best option to start, but probably not like anywhere near his 2015 form because it's the only time we've ever seen it. So he's probably not the quarterback that brings you back to the Super Bowl just by being him. At which point, again, my question is like, what is the plan? Like, what is the end game? to succeed Tom Brady or do they, you know, unless the plan is that they become like the sort of 1990s, early 2000 Minnesota Vikings where they just, you know, substitute in a seasoned veteran every year and seem to take on okay. You know, the way the Vikings went to like Warren Moon, Randall Cunningham, Brad Johnson, Jeff George just kept cycling through them and it was all fine because, you know, they, they had the system, they had the receivers, they had the offensive line in place. They were able to do that. Now, the Patriots don't really have any of that in place, but maybe that is the plan, right? We just sort of cycle through guys that are viable. So the Patriots don't have the depth chart there, but let's go back. Like, I was on a Patriots podcast actually last week, and this is immediately outdated. It was like, what's your take on Stidham? I was like, I think Belichick is probably approaching this like, I know it was 20 years ago, but I took this sixth-round quarterback and turned him into something pretty good. I made a pretty good decision with my second-round pick and Jimmy Garoppolo and flipped him, and he's turned out pretty good. Like, there's probably something in Belichick that says, man, I've got a pretty good track record at identifying starting quarterbacks. Now it's, like, two over the last 20 years. And who knows, does, like, Ryan Mallett count as a third-rounder? You know, you you got Matt Castle. He became a starting quarterback, right? So they have, like, a track record of identifying these guys. Does he... in? In Belichick's heart, does he believe that obviously he helped make Tom Brady a former sixth-round pick because his coaching in the system and his coaches in this this entire world, this ecosystem that they've created, is good at that? And not only good at creating these players, but identifying the ones that will flourish within that system. And I certainly think there's a world where Belichick believes that. And then when you combine it with what we keep talking about, and Renner and I actually discussed this Thursday, like the NFL, we said... There's like 28 to 32 like legitimate starters in the NFL right now. There wasn't five or six years ago. Is that actually a viable strategy over the next couple of years? If you truly believe in your ecosystem, your system, your uh, your program, so to speak, that you could just get the Marcus Mariotas and Cam Newtons and Jameis Winstons of the world and win. Yeah, and I, I get like like those Vikings teams. And I, I don't know that it's crazy. I think now more than maybe ever, it's a it's a plan that could work. You can also look at the sort of small sample sizes of games where Brady's missed and they've had to go to another option and say they've got a pretty good good track record of being able to plug some players in there and still win. You know, like when they had to play Jacoby Brissett and when they had to play Garoppolo, when they've, you know, they've had to turn to Castle. Now, okay, what was it, 11 and 5 down from 16 and 0? Like, you can look at that two different ways, but still, like, that was Matt Castle's first start since, like, high school. Um, So you could you can definitely make the case that they've been able to plug in quarterbacks and still win when they were this offensive juggernaut and when they were this really good side overall, which kind of brings us to like, are the Patriots actually good enough of getting the best play out of Cam Newton anymore? Cause this was, 
you like so i you don't have to delete takes you appear to have actually been on this all the way through my, i honestly thought they might be positioning themselves for next draft like to take the shot at tanking and get trevor lawrence and you know resume the evil empire for the next 20 years but i think this does change that because there's almost no way that Cam Newton plays and is bad enough for them to be in position to draft at the top of next year's draft. Um, but I, you do look at this and say Cam Newton's now dealing with all of the same problems that Brady had last year in terms of supporting cast because it didn't fix anything. Nothing was improved. And the only improvement is going to come from internal development, right? Like Nikhil Harry goes into year two. Can he get much better? Um, Mohamed Sanu isn't dealing with the injuries that he was dealing last year. Is he immediately better? Is Edelman able to flourish because those two guys are better? But, like, personnel-wise, it's the same, which is to say the worst receiving core in the NFL. And people were making this point that Cam Newton went 15-1, and you know, with, with the Panthers in 2015, and Philly Brown was one of their top receivers. It's like, yeah, but they also had Greg Olson at the peak of his powers. Um, Ted Ginn has been consistently one of the best deep threats in the NFL in his career, albeit one who was prone to drops, and he was there that year. So, you know, they had some weapons. Like, it's never going to be this clean, but I pulled up the the sort of cumulative or overall PFF grade of the receivers, all the receivers, tight ends, backs, wide receivers, for the Patriots last year and the Panthers in 2015. The Panthers were over 80. It was like 80.6 or something, and the Patriots are down to like 72. So those were dramatically different receiving cores, even though the name um, recognition was similar, I guess. Yeah, so let's let's discuss that for a second, because Cam, you know, I, I dropped the whole he's a middle-of-the-pack guy. He's a mid-tier guy. But let's we've also discussed before the style that those – mid-tier quarterbacks can have right there's the Alex Smiths there's the Derek Carrs on the conservative side then there's the Cam Newtons and the Jameis Winstons on the more volatile side so longtime listeners know that those volatile guys are just that right they are volatile so there are that's why you have outlier seasons you have Cam Newton's 2015 which when you look back at it instead of referring to him as an MVP you would say that is actually one of the biggest outliers statistically of the entire decade um, and even grading standpoint um, from a you know at, at PFF that it, Ryan Tannehill's last season is in there. Eli Manning has a year in there. So these highly volatile guys. If you have a volatile quarterback and say like a Nikhil Harry who's not great at separating, but he's got some ball skills and you could back shoulder him and you know maybe that intermediate range where Cam's just gonna you know whip some lasers and stuff like that. Like if you stumble into the year where he's a little bit more accurate on those, you can get some high end production there, right? So like. Cam's volatility means that maybe he'll be a little bit better at taking it. Not maybe he'll have it. He has a chance at taking advantage of some of these guys, right? Um, at the same time, if he's not good and you don't have guys that are getting open for him, um, that could be a challenge. Now there was the one year where they kind of brought Cam back down to earth. 2018. Everybody, the last time we think we saw Cam healthy was the first eight games of 2018, and we kept saying, "Look, he's not playing better." But he's definitely checking down a little bit more, taking the underneath stuff. His accuracy is still not great, but when Christian McCaffrey's creating after the catch and Curtis Samuel, like they had a shorter passing game. He had like 100 passer rating and all that stuff. Now, that was at a time when he was like 15th in the league in passer rating that year. But people who were looking at Cam Newton's numbers in a vacuum were saying this is a career year. And we were saying it's not. This is actually the system elevating him and him being a little bit more conservative. Is that, but we've at least seen him produce for eight games in that style. Is that ultimately the style that they go? It's Edelman underneath, it's James White underneath, and they, you know, they take a little bit off Cam's plate and kind of get back to that and say, look, just be the old game manager type. I think, I mean, my concern is that I don't think that anybody in that receiving core is a good fit for what Cam Newton does. Um, Cam Newton, so. Re- relive the Panthers' iterations of the Cam Newton support plan, right? Plan one was let's get Kelvin Benjamin and Kelvin Benjamin clones, get these six foot five guys, guys, Cam Newton, yeah, can't possibly overthrow, right? Bad idea. Turns out that those guys don't separate. You showed me a thing earlier that, that Kelvin Benjamin was in the zero, zeroth percentile for separating against man coverage. Just can't do it. 
cannot separate against man coverage. And what that means is, even though those guys might win, you know, a, a reasonable percentage of contested catches, basically every single catch they have is going to be contested because you're now forcing your quarterback to essentially throw at a bad picture every single play. He's never going to get that good, you know, the ideal quarterback pitcher is he gets to the top of his drop, he looks up, and he's got a guy with separation, right? Easy read, number one, separation, throw him the ball, done. He's never going to get that now because he's going to drop back, look up, and there's going to be a Kelvin Benjamin version with a guy draped all over him. And you now have to make that call of, well, is he covered or is he like covered but I can get the ball there anyway like you're basically asking him to make a bad decision every single play so it's just not a good mechanism and in one year in like in 2015 he made spectacular throws left and right and it worked it's just that's not a sustainable model but also remember that 2015 season that was when you had a speedster like Philly Brown you had Ted Ginn you actually had some receivers that got the hell open particularly deep down the field that offset a lot of that but my point is that strategy is not a good one for for any quarterback, particularly with ones that struggle a little bit in terms of accuracy. Um, the Patriots, you, you were on this all last season, they may have the slowest receiving core in the NFL. Julian Edmond can get open, but only underneath and, you know, in the, the sort of accurate area of the field that Tom Brady would always work. Cam Newton is not good at that. So Edelman immediately is less effective with Cam Newton as the quarterback than with Tom Brady. Mohamed Sanu is not a separator. He's not great at that. And Nikhil Harry, dating back to college, has never shown the ability to do that. So now you're... Who is getting open for Cam Newton in this offense? Which was the same question as Brady last year. Maybe Nikhil Harry going into year two develops that part of his game. He's been working on footwork in the offseason. You know, you've seen all these hype videos and all that kind of thing. Maybe. But none of these receivers, I think, are a good systematic schematic fit for what cam newton does well which is a deep down the field targets and b you know occasionally make those big plays in the middle of the field that you need a good picture to be able to reliably target so uh, i'm going through and i'm i'm ranking all of the units of each team essentially receiving tight end offensive line all that stuff doing team previews that are going to be out in the in the coming weeks so i'm going through all the receivers right now and it's funny as i go through all of them i try not to you know, view it through the lens of like best case scenario, but it's the off season and you tend to like lean that way. And it's a lot of like, well, if this guy takes this step and this guy takes this step, it's like, wow, this team, this, this receiving group looks pretty good. So I'll give you what that best case scenario looks like, right? Edelman's Edelman. He still gets open underneath receiver. He's fine. Nikhil Harry, as you said, there's a, there's a second step to his game, but even if there's not contested catches plus yards after the catch ability, like there's something to build there. Sanu, perhaps is healthy. They did add Demir Bird. He's got sub 4-4 speed, so he could be the guy that, you know, gets open down the field a little bit. They add Marquise Lee, and I think between Marquise Lee and Jacoby Myers, you might have that other potential option who could, you know, has a little wiggle and can get open a little bit, right? Like, so, in the offseason, when you're not comparing to the other 31 teams, on paper, it doesn't look terrible. The tight end class still has massive, I mean, the tight end group still has massive question marks. They drafted two guys, Devin Asiasi and Dalton Keene, to go with Matt Lacoste. I mean, they are, it is a slow offense with Demir Bird in there who's fast. I mean, that is what it is. But there's a scenario where a couple guys bounce back, there's a little bit more health, and it's reasonable. But I think either way, we're still looking at Cam throwing to a subpar group of playmakers, which has been the majority of his career in Carolina. Right. Yes, th- that I think at least is the one <clears throat> is the one sort of thing, you know, that's, that that is in the plus column is that at least it's not new right cam newton has dealt with this before he has had dramatically subpar receiving cores throughout his career in carolina i don't think that 2015 one that a lot of people point to is a good example of that right he's definitely dealt with some questionable receiving groups my overall point is that a i don't think this group is going to help him and b i think they're unusually they're an unusually bad fit in terms of what it is he does right so you could have even if you had a bunch of crappy receivers, if they were stylistically the right type of receivers, I could see a scenario where they actually worked well together. I yep. think these are an unusually bad group of receivers, and they are stylistically bad for what it is he does well as a passer. The other aspect, though, that really intrigues me is the one you touched on before, is what do the Patriots do with Cam Newton? Because 
I mean, he was Lamar Jackson before Lamar was Lamar in terms of bringing something genuinely unique to the table from a rushing standpoint, albeit, you know, different styles, but that changed the game, right? You can't defend Lamar and the Ravens right now because he changes the numbers and he basically invalidates what it is you typically do on defense to stop the run. Cam did the same thing. You know, the you were able to run QB power with Cam Newton, and that chain that fundamentally changes what it is you have to do on defense in order to combat that, which op- obviously always has the knock-on effect of opening other things up. So, but Cam Newton is now, however many years into his career, has dealt with significant injuries for a pretty extensive period of time. Like he is breaking down because of all this. So. Do you continue to embrace what makes him unique on the basis that now he's 100% healthy? Do you say this is exposing him to too many hits and forget about it? We're dialing way back. We're going to make him a pocket passer who can move. Like we're going to essentially ask him to be Aaron Rodgers. You know, take off when it's there. Yeah. Don't when it's not. Well, so Cam is is a lot like Lamar in that respect, too. Like he's not a scrambler. Like Cam wants to sit in the pocket. Almost too much right. he wants to sit in the pocket, right? So um, a lot of people – miss those points sometimes they're like oh athletic quarterback he just runs around and makes plays like it's you know Madden dropping back 15 yards and running around like cam's never been that guy if there's a complaint with cam it's that he sits at the top of the pocket too much and just like likes throwing in a phone booth so to speak um instead of creating that little bit of space i think that's one of his his uh weaknesses through the years but i think i think the patriots and belichick look at it as we got him for one year. I mean, I think they might use him the way that, you know, running backs are used where it's like, all right, run him as much as we have to. And then he's walking at the end of the year and and we'll see what happens. Like, I don't, this is one of those scenarios where I don't think, you know, he's not locked up for four years. You don't have to protect your franchise quarterback. You don't have to develop him. He's had that peak year. And in that peak year, he was one of the more efficient runners in the NFL. And that was a big part of his game. I think if you're going to recapture that magic, that's a part of it. Now, his health is a concern for this year, but I don't think his long-term health for the Patriots is a right. concern. Not like brain injuries or anything like that, but like I don't think they care if he takes a few extra hits this season. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they certainly don't care long-term, but we're reaching the point where these hits are having like a pretty acute um, impact in his play. Like he's battled, He's played a lot of games in recent years where he shouldn't have, or at least the level he was able to play at because of the injuries he was fighting through made him a much, much worse quarterback. So I think there's a very real concern, not just that like, hey, these injuries he's picking up are going to hamper him a few years down the line. It's like you're going to – you might play him and he'll make it through, but the last eight games of the season are going to be crappy Cam Newton because you've got the guy battered. The one other thing that I think is worth touching on, I've seen people argue this – like, do you envisage any scenario whereby Jarrett Stidham actually beats out Cam Newton for the starting job? Um, I, I do. I, I, there's what would need to happen. It would, I think it would be like I mean, look, nothing is a hundred percent. So I say yes, I do. It would be like that. The Patriots truly do. Be a fox, really... Steve. Be a fox, hundred <laughs> percent, all in. Jared Stidham is the starter. They invested <laughs> in him in the fourth round. They believe in him. He had four good throws in the preseason last year, and that's all they need to see. That's all they mm-hmm. need to see out of Stidham. They think they're going to make him the next Brady, or at least the next Garoppolo, or at least 40%. the next Castle. <laughs> that's 40% of what uh, what uh, Bill O'Brien needed to see before he handed Brock Osweiler a $72 million contract. See? See? And Stidham's a, a deal. He's a steal on his on his rookie contract. So the scenario would be like they truly think Stidham has a chance to be the long-term play. And Cam Newton is just a a business decision the same way picking right. up Kyle Van Noy as a free agent is a business decision or picking up any other player at any other position is a business decision that's like good for right now. It was the right value as you said. They were they found a bargain, they picked it up, but the plan was all along Jarrett Stidham. And unless he he tanks in whatever kind of training camp they have, then it's Jared Stidham's job. That would right. be the scenario. The other scenario is there's so little training camp that Cam Newton can't pick up the offense or doesn't have time to pick up the offense or whatever it is, and Jared right. Stidham happens to be the guy, and Cam becomes the guy at some point if, if Stidham fails. So let's assume for a minute that some form of normal training camp is going to happen, right? Yeah. How do you imagine them 
going into that camp. Cam 50-50. Yeah. With, with Stidham as the sort of like in, on paper starter. The yeah. starter. Stidham <laughs> yeah. gets like the first reps and it's 50-50. And then ultimately it becomes pretty obvious it, that Cam Newton is superior to Jared Stidham and the thing yeah. tilts. Okay, so... So the scenario for Stidham to actually win that job would base would have to involve outplaying Cam Newton during training camp for the Patriots. This I year. think so. Or there's no training okay. camp and and Stidham's the default. And he gets it by because, default, right? Yeah. And yep. So then then the discussion would be: All right, Stidham opens the season as starter effectively by default because Cam Newton hasn't had a chance to take the job from him yet. Then the question would be: How long does Stidham last before he plays himself to the bench? Bearing in mind the last time he played himself to the bench after like one throw. One throw, right. He was it was a garbage time pick six that brought the Jets back into the game and they had to put Brady back in. I mean I Right. Yeah, they, I, I th- they actually sent him out there and mop up Judy and had to pull him again. If I'm betting, obviously it's on Cam Newton to be the starter, but um I don't I just, think it's I a, mean, I'm, <clears throat> I'm I don't think it's a crazy scenario like, to think that they they do believe in Jared Stidham and they and they are taking the long there's still a chance that they're taking the long term approach that we need to know if Jared Stidham could be our guy and need sure. to give him a shot. I, mean, I think, again, like the the idea of Newton landing in the middle, like either way, I think that still holds true. Like, yeah. The, the Patriots are in the weird, luxurious position now of being able to make that long-term development deal that never happens anymore, right? The idea that quarterbacks do actually take some time to develop, you know, and yeah. you're gonna, you need a few years to get a guy used to what he's supposed to be doing at the NFL level, like, you know, players like Russell Wilson have just ruined that for everybody because now you expect them to get it day one. And some of them do, but there's probably a group of quarterbacks that still would be good if you gave them that old-school three-, four-year development plan that doesn't exist anymore. So the Patriots are in the weird position of actually having a shot at achieving that. You had Stidham last year. You can potentially have him this year, and you could get two, three years down the line before you ever have to put him out there as a starter. Um, it's possible. I would. It, I'm just fascinated by the groups of people that always seem to, you know, exist on Twitter when, um, when these things happen. Right? It's like there's obviously the group that are like, well, how do pay, how do the Patriots do it? MVP for MVP, it's cheating. And then you get the other group that are like, well, until they actually announce he's a starter, Jarrett Stidham is the starter, and Cam Newton right. just come in as competition. You're like, well, look, it's like. He, he may I not be, even. you know, the reigning MVP, but he's got the advantage over Jared Stidham. Come on, I can't even deal with the with the Twitter takes anymore, man. It's 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 rough. I mean, it really is. Um, everything needs to be as polarizing as possible when it comes to you know this trade or that move or whatever it is. And uh, you know, look at the Patriots; they got a guy that can throw down the field now. Or oh, you know, it's, like you said, it's still Stidham's job. Like there is no in between on any of this stuff. I'm trying to ignore the noise, Sam. Have my own. My own on the fence takes. So, um, here's the one other thing I think we need to tie the bow on this. Let's land the plane. Uh, AFC East. Okay, because there's a lot of takes out there. Oh, finally, the, the, now the AF, the Cam Newton's the best quarterback in the AFC East again. He does. He's coming off three straight years grading in the twenties uh, for us, ranking in the twenties. Yes, there was you know injury late in season in 2018. Last year was only two games. Um, but he hasn't been actually like really good in a while. He hasn't even been good from a throw and a throw for throw standpoint for a while. Right. So on the other hand, the AFC East quarterback situation is not good. Oh, it's poor. And I know. And um, we're not going to do bingo this year. We're not going to mention the Buffalo guy. We got people upset. We keep mentioning them. We're not going to mention the Buffalo guy. But um, Buffalo's got the best roster, I'd say, in the AFC East. I still think the Patriots defensively even with all their losses because of what they have in the secondary they have just as good a shot as buffalo of having a shutdown defense so could they duplicate like what they did last year for the first 8 to 10 games maybe not exactly but they could that's going to keep them close in the mix i this definitely bridges the gap from my original take i think it's right. buffalo's division now like it's much tighter between i think the bills and the patriots I will say that I, I I don't think there will be a more upset team than the buffalo bills if this signing happened because yeah. You know, they I wanted to see what things... Jared Stidham had. That was their best shot, right? Let's oh, yeah. see what Stidham well, is. Well, not just that, but like I think, I mean, Buffalo, the the specter of a Cam Newton being healthy enough to be a starter for the Patriots all season long 
should have been dangerous enough to Buffalo that they should have signed him as a backup just to stop that from happening. But I don't think Cam Newton wanted that. Like, you know, Cam Newton's thing was very minimum, I want a chance to compete to start, right? Obviously, he wanted a starting job. There aren't any of those out there. So next best option is, well, I want at the very minimum a shot to compete with the guy who's starting. So that's what he's got, right? He's signed with the Patriots on a one-year deal that is effectively a backup contract, but he has a shot to actually compete with Stidham and take that starting job. He doesn't have that shot in Buffalo. Like, they're not going to let him compete with Josh Allen. Whatever we think about Allen, they believe in him, believe he's the future. They're not going to risk that with a Cam Newton, at which point they can't sign him to keep him out of the clutches of the Patriots, and he signs with the Patriots, and now you're dealing with this, it was our division to lose, and suddenly there's very real competition again because assuming Cam Newton is healthy and gets anywhere near back to what he can be, like, that's a viable concern for Buffalo. So, yeah, I don't imagine there's a more pissed-off team in the NFL that this happened than than the Bills. I, I love that as a concept, though. I mean, that goes back to my whole, like, accumulate accumulate quarterbacks and all that stuff. Like, the idea that if, if the quarterback truly moves the needle that much, how valuable is it? Say, like, the Raiders signing Marcus Mariota. What if... They're in their you know their meeting rooms back in February. They're like, listen, we're going to sign Marcus Mariota just so the Chargers don't get him, just so we have an edge within the division, just so that this team in our division doesn't get this guy who's an upgrade. And then they have to either sign Tom Brady or go with Tyrod Taylor slash Justin Herbert, and that's an advantage for us. But like that decision to sign Marcus Mariota as a backup could be way more impactful than your other top free agent signing as far as, you know, winning your division. I think it's a viable strategy. Now, to your point, there's the human element of, like, would Cam Newton accept a backup deal to Buffalo and all that stuff? Um, but if there was a team to pull it off, it's Carolina North, right? I mean, that's that's the whole Carolina regime up there. And uh, yeah. bringing Cam in, like, they could have potentially pulled it off. But you have to balance the question of, like, do you not believe in Josh Allen anymore? Is Cam Newton actually the starter? Is he competing for the starting job? Uh, yeah. He- you do Don't have give to give me quarterback controversy concerns, you, Mister. I never care about that crap. I'm saying you have to answer those questions. I don't think it affects your team, but you do have to answer those questions. So, um, I love it as a concept, though. My point all along. Like if the like from a New England standpoint, if they had drafted Lamar Jackson back in 2018 instead of Sony Michelle, right? They still could have won the Super Bowl in 2018, and maybe not had to deal with the Ravens last year and Lamar Jackson and lose, you know, the number one seed in the NFL. Like there's little things like that along the way. Like uh, if the Colts, if Bill Polian actually put his money where his mouth was back in 2000, he said he had a first round grade on Tom Brady. He should have drafted Tom Brady. Drafting Tom Brady would have led to more Colts championships than, you know, whoever else they selected in 2000. So that's what you should have done. So the favorite, my favorite thing to come from all this Cam Newton stuff is that it has re-highlighted the career wondery that is Chase Daniel Um, because Cam Newton and Jameis Winston's contracts combined are earning less than Chase Daniel is being paid this year to be a backup. Come on, Uh, really? Yes, correct. Uh, Chase Daniel is the king of dollar per pass attempt in the NFL in NFL history. Would you like to know the current tally? Yes, I would. So for Chase Daniels' career now, 11 seasons, he has earned $34.3 <laughs> million, right? He's been around for 11 <laughs> seasons. Yeah. He has attempted 218 passes in that period, meaning he has earned $15,738 for every time he's thrown the football in the NFL over a decade. That is amazing. Isn't what it? An, what an insurance policy. That guy's career is just something else. Like, Good for you Chase. Know, we, we talk. The, the thing is, so, you know, I've been railing against these guys that literally can't be on the field. The, the Matt Castles of the world, late career Matt Castle, the Chad Hennies, you know, those guys like that, that are literally wasting a roster, a roster spot because you cannot put them on the field. So you have them there just for off-field meeting room, mentorship, whatever it is. It's not, a, it's not an on-field football reason. Like, Chase Daniel is not the worst backup quarterback in the world. Like, he's actually, you could play him, you can win games. Yeah. He isn't horrendous. It's just hilarious that he's earning that much money for that role. It is amazing, right? And if you're going to spend that type of money on him, absolutely, you would 
spend the money on you should be you should want to spend the money on a Jameis, a Cam, or a or a Mariota oh, yeah. in a backup role. Absolutely. I mean, that's the other thing is that you know he's earning an absolute freaking fortune, and these guys are struggling to get but, contracts. And that's also the, you know I see when I am scouring Twitter, um, I see people like LOL, stupid Raiders. You know, you spent a ton of money on Marcus Mariota. You could have waited it out and gotten Cam Newton. Like I am. I am all in on the Marcus Mariota as a backup quarterback deal. I think that's sure. those types of deals are a no-brainer. They're a no-brainer for $8 million, $9 million. I think it's absolutely worth it for all of the reasons that we've said. Insurance, um, rejuvenation to his career, or even just keeping him away from the Chargers. All of those things, I think, combined. The, it goes back to the Jalen Hurts thing. Jalen Hurts has this like list of reasons why having him as a second-round pick could really pay off. And even if none of those come through he's still worth the insurance policy that you paid for, right? So I think um, all of those things, I don't think you can overpay or, you know, overdo it with having too many quarterbacks or, you know, getting them from all these different types of ways. I don't think it makes the Tannehill deal look bad. I don't think it makes the Dalton deal look bad. The only quarterback deal that I think it makes look bad is the Bears trading for Nick Foles. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. Sure, absolutely. Because that is, A, an egregious contract that the Jags wanted rid of in the first place, and, B, you traded something to make it happen. Right. While you, like, that's one where you can point to a very viable alternative that costs less and is probably better. Like, instead of trading – Giving up some, giving up something to take on an egregious contract for a guy who might not be any better than these guys. You could right. have had the free option for less money, who's probably better. Like that Comple- isn't good. Completely agree. Completely agree. You don't need to. You don't need to give something up to go get Nick right. Foles. You really don't. Something's something's missing there. All right. Um, good stuff, man. Put a put a bow on that Cam Newton discussion. Um, let's have a season. Let's have some fun and, and see all this stuff play out. Now, um, over at PFF.com, you've been uh, you've been grinding during your off week. Were you just grinding uh, research or what for this for this big article? No. So it was a we ended up with a kind of collaboration piece where Timo did a lot of the legwork with the research, and then I put it together last night. Nothing nothing says you know getting back to work on a Monday more than being up the night before writing the article that's going to yeah. be on the website. Um, I like it. So it's basically uh, our, our buddy Josh Hermsmeyer wrote a piece for 538 that was looking at the types of pressure and how important they are. And we've kind of done bits and pieces on that in the past. And his sort of overall takeaway was, you know, sacks are incredibly valuable um, compared to the other types of pressure. And he was looking at it through a lens of the percentage of drives that they stall, that they stop, right? If you get a sack and a drive, it ends the drive there. And that's obviously really good for a defense. Um, And one of the things, so it was massively different, but one of the interesting things is, you know, sacks skew third down heavy, right? Something like 40% of all sacks happen on third downs. And on third downs, uh, any basic pressure is more likely to result in a sack, right? Because third downs are different. In in theory, that's the last down before you got to kick the ball away. So things change a bit the the quarterback is more likely to hold the ball a little bit longer because he's trying to make that play happen um everything just sort of changes a little bit so it's more like and obviously a a sack on third down immediately ends a drive like there's no there's no chance of redemption down the line so it was like well that's likely to skew those numbers a little bit what happens if you like neutralize the down and distance the scenario and say first and ten passing situations and ultimately the same thing happens it it the impact of the sack is slightly less. It jumps from... So if you get any sack on a drive, the chance of converting a first down become 20%, right? Like one oh, in yeah. five. It's huge. But yep. that, that factors the fact that like 40% of all sacks are on third down, right? So 40% right. of those immediately crap out the drive. Um, but if you make it on first and 10, that number almost doubles. It becomes like 38%, I think, almost 40%. But the difference between a sack and other types of pressure, the gap actually widens. So they become more impactful versus any other type of pressure because the same thing is kind of true with, you know, a hit that forces an incomplete pass on third down is effectively bringing up fourth down and kicking it away as well. That's essentially ending the drive also. So when you take that away, even an incomplete pass on first or second down, you've still got a chance to pick that up on third down and NFL passing offenses are so efficient now that they can overcome that most of the time. So every other type of pressure is like well over 50%. It's like almost, it's most of them are above 60% in terms of still converting on the drive. But sacks 
are massively um, impactful. And probably more, I think we've used this sort of rough equation of two to one. You know, a sack is worth two, two other types of pressure, uh, two to one. I think it's probably more than that. Um, but what it does, what it did start to um, highlight is you, almost, you basically can't predict sacks, right? You, you can predict them better than looking at previous sacks. So the fact that um, Shaq Barrett, right? Shaq Barrett, sack leader, 20-sack type season. The fact that he did that this year has an extremely small um, effect on his chance of doing anything like that next year. The, f- the number of pressures he, he amassed this year and his pressure rate have w- and his PFF grade have way greater predictive power than how many sacks he's had in the past. But none of them really like move the needle because his pressure is so relevant or so dependent on coverage and the, co- the opposing quarterback and those kinds of things way more than it is like the actual pass rusher. So this idea of sacks are paramount, sacks are what you should be chasing, this is true, but you probably can't identify them enough to make it like the reason yeah. to go after a guy. So to a, so to a point, we for years we've been saying, hey, sacks don't predict sacks. Right. We kind of got to that conclusion. You're adding a couple other layers of nuance and detail to it. Um, I started doing a study last year, which was trying to f- go back at, on every NFL sack, and I made it through a few weeks or whatever. I'm going back to finish it at some point. And I was saying, okay, what's like the first order reason for this sack? Is it um, – I, I would, and I would say this is coverage if the first read was essentially taken away, right? If, the, if, if a quarterback had a chance to get rid of the ball, but, the, but it was covered, then, you know, coverage was, say, the first reason. Or it was a completely blown blocking assignment, or it was just the offensive line, defensive line interaction, whatever it might have been. There was only about 30% of those that was just like pure – defender one quarterback had no shot i mean just 30 percent of sacks never mind 30 percent of pressures and right in that 30 percent mark was probably coverage first and i had first order and second order you know so some had you know a little bit of both and a big chunk of them as we know are on the quarterback and that goes back to that whole like defense doesn't matter concept that our analytics guys have come up with and you know i i hate you know I'm a, I'm a, as a fence sitter sam you know, i don't like saying defense doesn't matter you know because it doesn't convey the right message but the point that they're trying to make if i could just interpret their defense doesn't matter words it's that it's easy you know the offense is going to help you predict the defense a lot more than you think right that the defense's production is far more based on the offense than anybody would have you believe especially a defensive coordinator so that comes down to the quarterback holding the ball the receivers not getting open the cornerback actually covering the receiver. To, you know, so um, it's really good stuff. Some of it's intuitive. Some of it's, you know, like more extreme maybe than we even expected that like non-pass rushing factors are so strong in actually predicting sacks or the inability to predict sacks. Yeah, so I, I think it, it's an awkward thing, right? It's not that defense doesn't matter and it's not the pa- it's not the. Of coverage. course not. It's never that black and white, Sam. Of course not. And it's not that coverage is just inherently, you know, better exclusively than pass rush, right? The idea is not that you should never covet pass rush or that you should only ever target coverage and forget about pass rush. It's just that, like, we've always known that those two have, like, a symbiotic relationship, right? Coverage impacts pass rush and pass rush impacts coverage. Um, and, you know, it's been used, that gets used even in, at the, even in broadcasts a lot. We talk about coverage sacks, Right. The quarterback had nowhere to go. That's that's on that's a coverage sack, um, and we've seen the reverse happen, right? There's been bad coverage where legit pass rush is bailed to play out, right? Let's say a coverage bust or a guy trips and falls in the secondary, but the pass rush gets there just before the quarterback can get rid of it, and the ball falls incomplete. So the two impact each other. But what, be, what when you start to look at the numbers, what becomes interesting is how much the coverage or the coverage and the quarterback, because, again, those two have a sort of symbiotic relationship, how much those impact the pressure numbers. So you would think that, all right, what it, the quality of the pressure, like how because all, not all pressures are created equal. So Aaron Donald winning at the line in like one and a half seconds and bearing down on the quarterback should, in theory, have a much bigger impact than a guy slowly working his way there and getting somewhere in the quarterback's face after like four seconds, right? But it doesn't. When you look at like how quickly the pressure arises, there's almost no measurable impact, regardless of how fast it got there. 
the only thing that does make an impact is if you look at pressure that was charged to the quarterback as opposed to anything else, right? When the quarterback is charged, that has a much more severe negative impact to the offense, which again indicates that coverage is the thing driving this because, you know, there there are going to be bad quarterback plays in there as well, right? Like the Baker Mayfields from a year ago where he's just bouncing from a clean pocket, causing problems, pressure, it's on Baker, the end, right? But most quarterback charge pressures are going to be essentially related to coverage. It's like, crap, I have to hold the ball longer. It isn't there. It isn't there. Hold, 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 and pressure. That's getting charged to the quarterback, but it's effectively coverage sacks translated to pressures. Um, So when you do that, the numbers plummet. Like, quarterbacks struggle massively more when they haven't got anywhere to go with the ball as essentially determined by coverage than when they just have somebody bearing down on them and they can react to that and do something with it. Yeah, I mean, so that also goes down to, we've always said, like, the stable measures of quarterback play, actually clean pocket versus pressure and all that stuff. And then if you have a guy like Derek Carr getting rid of the ball quickly and kind of protecting his offensive line and kind of being a little conservative, like, if he's going to have 10% more clean dropbacks than, say, Daniel Jones, it's actually a lot easier to predict Derek Carr's performance year to year because you've got 10% more clean pocket uh snaps and you know that performance is going to be a lot more stable which is why daniel jones or a nick Foles or a guy that's willing to stand in there and make these plays and hold on to the ball a little bit longer and maybe invite pressure a little bit more they're going to have a wider uh, range of outcomes but that that does make a lot of sense though sam because if the court you know if the quarterback is being charged with the pressure it's either because there's not a play to happen there you know to be made or because the quarterback is you know being bad on the play and a lot of those could be yeah. fumbles as well once they invite the pressure to them that's good i mean so i like seem- the way we track pressure though because that's important right that it's you can divvy up the credit properly and figure out um you know who's to blame for certain things so timo's going to write a follow-up article which i'll be really interested to see he's basically going to dive into the data and answer the question that we've nibble that a little bit which is can you predict these guys that skew sack heavy compared with pressure um my initial reaction is no i don't know there's a way you can do that generally speaking i think uh finishing pressure essentially converting pressures into sacks is not a skill um i think the reverse like it can be a deficiency you know your your friend that's cost you lunches brandon graham um consistently will get less sacks than he does than I, his pressure volume should determine. Right? I don't know if Gen- we have the data to test my theory on that. It just use what? it using those two guys when you hear it play out. Like so using Chandler Jones versus Brandon Graham. I would say Brandon Graham, he's got great hands, but he's more of like a burst, get to the edge, half man win type of guy. Right? So like he has a lot of wins where he's still kind of engaged with the blocker. He'll get around him. He'll be like a half, more of like what we call a half man win, but there's still enough contact between him and the tackle that he can get pushed past the pocket. This is like very specific, and you know, again, it's tough to test. But that's that's how I picture Brandon Graham getting a bunch of his pressures. He wins in other ways, but like that's a big part of them. Whereas Chandler Jones doesn't win with burst. He wins straight up with technique. He's like a you know, it looks like he's playing kung fu out there sometimes. You know, he's you know in, in like a kung fu battle sometimes. He uses his hands extremely well, um, and when he wins, he wins. It's like you he doesn't have the defender on him anymore. He's got a clear path to the quarterback because he's actually stopping and using a little shake and a shutter. You know, all these you know, I won't act it out, but he's putting a, a more of a move on, and when he wins, he wins. And then when you have okay. the, sh- the clean line to the quarterback, he's going to sack him. So it's my theory. Generally, okay, generally speaking, uh, pass rushes convert pressure into sacks on 15% of their time, right? 15 is the number. Yep. There are players that consistently skew either side of that, but they're kind of rare and they're unusual. So I think in particular there are players that consistently skew below it. Um, the ones that skew above it are usually a sample size thing. Like the... When you get into big sack, like guys that generate a lot of pressure and skew sack heavy are really, really rare, which I think is my overall point and why I suspect yeah. that when Timo dives into all the data, the answer will be you can't predict those guys because 
it's down to coverage and it's down to the quarterbacks and it's down to all the other factors at play. Those are the things that essentially dictate whether the pressure will become a sack, not whether the guy is is like a finisher. Um, so uh, Brandon Graham is one of the players that's consistently skewed below. Brian Robinson for the Vikings was always another one. Here's my counter to your point, though, with uh, Brandon Graham. Guess a player that skews below. Now, I looked at the last 10 years of data, so I'm chopping out a few years of his career. But the last decade, guess a player that you would not expect to who skews low on sacks versus pressure. On an edge? As an edge? Yes. Uh, Vaughn Miller. Dwight Freeney. Oh. Oh. Right. Theory, theory gone. Right. <laughs> so Dwight Freeney, for a decade, for the last decade, Oh, wait, you said low. He's like Graham. He's in the Graham bucket? Yes. No, that kind of – because a lot of his stuff is – is burst and half man wins and kind of getting around the corner too. He had a lot of clean wins too. Obviously, he was awesome. He had the spin move. He had the whole, he had the whole gamut. But he had a lot of like pure speed, like get to the top of the pocket wins. That that's how I, there's guys who just get to the top of the pocket, force the quarterback for, to step up. Give me a comp for uh, for Chandler Jones and it doesn't that wins the same way. Uh, JPP, maybe. JPP. Terrell Suggs. Uh, Terrell Suggs. All right, well, I'd say more like power type. Either so Chandler right. Jones is Terrell really Suggs. unique. Terrell Suggs backs you up. He skews positive. Look at this. JPP a little bit, but more in the average. Chandler, Chandler Jones is very unique because, like I said, he's not a pure power player. I think he's just he's right. just a hands winner over and over and over again. Um, but then you have hands winners like our guy Henry Anderson. He's kind of like. Wins with his hands, but his balance is so bad, he more like stumbles into the top of the pocket instead of actually getting there. The list of guys that can skew positive is actually really interesting. Um, Like Chandler Jones is the biggest outlier that you can think of. He has the third highest percentage in the last decade in terms of skewing sack uh, heavy. And so the average does it at 15%. He's done it at 21.4 for the decade which is absurd because he also has like one of the highest numbers of pressures over that decade. The, there's two guys ahead of him, but night like Robert Mathis is number one. TJ Watt is number two. Those are both only uh, marginally ahead of him. And they both have a fraction of the number of pressures, obviously, because they haven't been doing it as long in the decade, but the next sort of heavy pressure and sack heavy guy is Robert Quinn. And Quinn is another one of those pure speed guys that wins around the yeah. edge, wins with burst, wins with acceleration. I would describe um, him more like a Freeney type when he was at his best. So, yeah, that right. it's tough to find trends. I mean, D Ford got, feels like the guy that doesn't convert high. He's another, like, get-to-the-top-of-the-pocket-with-speed guy and probably accumulates actual pressures, but maybe not as many sacks. Nope, D Ford skews sack-heavy. He's actually okay. the other end of the spectrum. Um, DeMarcus Ware skewed sack heavy, which is an interesting one because he's another guy that was absurdly productive, period, and skewed sack heavy. Um, Julius Peppers. Julius Peppers also skewed sack heavy despite being insanely productive. Um, So those guys are interesting. And, like, really, really, like, there are some very, very good pass rushers that were able to skew sack heavy for an extended period of time, but they're absurdly rare, and I don't know that you can make the case that they are the reason that that happened right like I think again this is what Timo is going to end up diving into when he pulls the entire database to pieces is we may end up coming to the realization that they faced um, an unusual slate of quarterbacks or that they had an unusually good coverage unit behind them a lot of the time that helped them to skew sack heavy over a period of however many years yeah no it's, it's definitely it, it's definitely uh an interesting deep dive. I think we've done a really good job at PFF of identifying the best pass rushers through the years through our, our system. And we've um, come to some pretty good conclusions, I think through the years. And it's awesome to kind of see it uh, move even forward, add more data to it, add some people who can do a little bit more with numbers than just you, Sam, you know, it's, it's, it's always helpful Hmm. as well. No offense. Hmm. I'm just saying we could all use a little bit of help. Trying to find who the most prolific, like it, (laughs) most prolific and yet inadequate pass rusher is when it comes to converting pressures into sacks. Is it Brand? I mean, is Brandon Graham the most Brandon Graham of anybody? Who's the most Brandon Graham of anybody here? Probably if you're setting, like if you set the production threshold high enough, 
he because he's got like almost 500 pressures in the last decade, which is right. one I think it's like two or three in the NFL, um, and yet he's one of the he's one of the worst five edge rushers in football over that period. The other guy is Croy Beerman, um, Brooks mm. Reed, Robert Ayers, um, and Eric Armstead, who half of his time wasn't really a true edge rusher in this sample size anyway. I mean, the other, uh, you those get, guys that like, you're you get a lot of guys here who aren't true edge rushers, to be honest. That's true, too. You're not going to convert as much probably on the interior because Robert Ayers kicked inside, had a couple nice years there. Eric Armstead's moved around everywhere. Who else right. did you mention? And even just stylistically, like Lamar Houston is just above Brandon Graham. Lamar Houston was one of those like 280 pounds sort of fat guy converted yeah. interior players, you know? Um, so there's a lot of those guys. Interestingly, uh, Fletcher Cox is down there in terms of interior guys which backs up the idea that, look, I mean, I've said before, he's the best power pass rusher in the NFL. Well, but that's by the definition, bull rushes, yeah. Right. By definition, when you're rushing with power, you're not going to be sacking at the end of it because you got to, you still have a guy, right. you know, engaged at the time. That's pretty difficult to sack a guy doing that. So that at least makes some, some sense there. Yeah, guys with a ton of bull rush pressure will not be good at that number. How about Chris Long? Is he a, a, a low converter? He also feels like he had a... I'm just looking at him right now. 65 pressures and five sacks one year. That's low. 64 and five. 62 and Chris nine. Long is. He had three years with double digit sacks by our numbers, though. 83. 13.5%. So he skews a little, a little bit negative, but not, not massively. Yeah. He had, a pretty, he had a pretty nice career rushing the passer. What, a, what an interesting case as one of those big, essentially, 3 4 defensive ends, old school 3 4 defensive end in college, then becoming kind of like a. Uh, speed pass rusher at the next level or get the, to the uh, top of the pocket guy the interior list is actually is pretty interesting in terms of skewing sack heavy because this is the one that I think is completely random like I this whatever about edge rusher there might be a skill involved somewhere in edge rushers being able to convert this but they're <laughs> just judging by the list of the guys that skew sack happy from interior players I would say that this is completely random or the work of something else the two best pass rushers in the NFL right now, from an interior point of view, Aaron Donald and Chris Jones, are almost flat bang in the middle. They're fifteen point nine percent or fifteen point six percent each. So they basically—that's how—that's what you expect it to be. I will give you lunch for nothing if you can tell me who the number one interior player in the last decade is, who is skewed sack heavy. That has converted sacks. Yep. Can I can I just glance at names real quick? Give me a minute. Pause. Sure. I'm okay. going to pick one random it's, year and I'll see give if you I can... his percentage. 19.7% of his pressure wound up as sacks. So essentially big sample size? Five. Is it a big sample uh, size? Big enough. Derek Wolf. No. <sighs> Can't find Derek Wolf. I don't know where he is. I'll give you two and three. Henry Melton. Oh, of course. Um, number two. And Desmond Bryant. Number three, Desmond. Oh, you're working from a small sample here. Oh, Derek Wolf's number four. You were in. You wow, know, you weren't crazy. I use the method of going to premium stats, picking a random <laughs> year, glancing quickly at the sack totals, and picking one Quite a guy. lot of sacks. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was Derek Wolf in 2016. So now, if I go early decade and just see, so I'm gonna start giving you hints at which point the lunch becomes off the table because I'm helping you. Antonio um, Smith. He was a no. He was a nose tackle. Marcel Darius was is yes Marcel Darius is lunch still lunch still on the table? No, I told you as soon as I started giving you hints. Oh lunch no, right at the window. Oh, I could have picked. I clicked on 2012, and there he was, seven sacks, only 32 <laughs> pressures. What a fun game our listeners are. It's Steve and Sam are just guessing stuff, and Steve's looking it this up is, online, and you can't see it. This is June podcasting at its finest. This is almost good as Mike Renner just reads you out a list of 50 things. That all right? Did you did you do that on Thursday for all time's sake? Ah, uh, we should have. But uh, Mike, read this list. There's like Renner's got like two or three really good fans that that like like having him back. Just saying. Well, they know they can get him at the two for one podcast, right? The two yeah, I did everything I could draft. to push him there. Like, listen, Renner's not okay. coming back, so go go see him somewhere else. <laughs> We're not having him back. Maybe like next draft season or when I have a baby. I'm having another baby, right? Doesn't it feel like we were just here with me and my phone on my desk waiting for the call? You know for... why that is? I, I know why I'm having another baby, yes. I, I'm no, no, no. You know why oh. it just it feels like it was just, just recently that that oh. happened? Because it was 16 months ago. Yeah, because it was <laughs> just recently. And yet you're back there again like a lunatic. Yeah. So we're due uh, within the next two or three weeks. 
So, uh, I got the phone. She calls me from downstairs that she's going into labor. It's, uh, I think it's we're easier this time, time, at least, to uh, to identify, yeah. you know, the false alarms than it was last time. Much easier commute. Also, just That's just it. so people know, people have to understand this too. In the PFF parking garage, I'm driving the massive <laughs> minivan, right? And I got my own parking yeah. spot there, and and then the boss, Chris, comes in with his Tesla, and he parks directly behind me <laughs> all the time like that's his spot and there's not enough room for me to get out i have to do imagine if i had to rush to the hospital and you chris is in austin the austin powers time. yeah yes. you have to do that austin powers scene every time you want to maneuver the minivan out of the garage and i keep coming in there and there's like new evidence of you know bumper to immovable object <laughs> collisions that have happened which i'm pretty I sure all you just trying my... to get out yeah, my door's got some issues right now from trying to get it. I mean, it's like a 28-point turn to try to yeah. get away, and it's like, obviously, I'm going to take the dent on my car rather than Chris's. I can't do that to the boss, right. so I'm going to skew toward the pole rather than the Tesla. So um, imagine if we had to do that while Kelly's going into labor. So, yeah, the commute to downstairs should be a little bit cleaner if, you know, things happen on the podcast yeah. or just during Imagine, life. Imagine if you'd had to do that. Do you remember when we we went to the – Browns Colts joint scrimmage. Yeah, it took us about twenty five minutes to maneuver out past his car. Yeah, right. Legit, like twenty five minutes of me guiding you, you doing the driving, me being like, "All right, six inches this way, stop." <laughs> full full lock the other way. Like again, full Austin Powers. And this was because he'd he'd come in, jumped the car, and then like gone out to lunch or something. Yeah, he so just went out. We couldn't like, ask him to move stuck it. Stuck there. We couldn't move it. It was just there, and we had to leave and drive to Indy. So it took us 25 minutes maneuvering to get this thing out past the yeah. Tesla. So anyway, we don't have to deal with that. I'm not at the office. My wife doesn't have to give me the old uh, get home immediately. It's just get downstairs immediately mm. if, if needed. So uh, let's be aware over the next few weeks, you might have your own opportunity for a solo podcast or you could bring on a special guest like you, like I did. Never know. Okay. All right. I should All right, start, guys. I should draw up a short list. I should, I should have like a, a list of. You know, yes. People that I want to last minute call in to a Steve sub. Who would be your guy? Like Ben? Ben Stockwell? I could, we could bring back Ben. Old school, you know, dive back into the, yeah. the archives. That's what uh, I did last year. I remember c- you were away last year. I brought Ben on right. for a little bit. Yeah. Ben would be good. I, I also think there'd be some mileage in getting Bruce on. Oh, that's I good just point. want stories from Bruce. I just want comedy stories from Bruce. That's true. Like he's the got Marcus Russell like, one. Was legit. Yeah, he dropped that out on the one of the one of the um, one of the cocktail hour videos that we do, but we just get Bruce talking about Jamarcus for hours. That's that's worth it in and of itself. That's the title. Bruce Gradkowski tells Jamarcus Russell stories, and that's it. Yes, it's gonna be the, the be most listened to, most downloaded podcast in our in our history. <laughs> so anyway, thank you guys for tuning in. Go check out Sam's article and then Timo's follow up article over at pff.com. Big things coming next week is. I mean, it's like fantasy season starting next week. Football season for us at PFF, it never really ends, but it actually cranks back up starting next week. So get to PFF.com, get your Edge or Elite package, and get ready for the season that's going to happen. I'm very optimistic that it's all going to happen, and it's going uh, to be wonderful. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we will be back Thursday, a little TBD on um, what, what it's looking like, but either way, there's a podcast on Thursday. So we will talk to you guys then.